Chapter twenty two of the Pioneers or the Sources of the Susquehanna, a descriptive tale by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter twenty two Men, boys, and girls desert the unpeopled village, and wild crowds spread o'er the plain by the sweet frenzy driven. Somerville. From this time to the close of April the weather continued to be a succession of neat and rapid changes. One day the soft airs of spring seemed to be stealing along the valley, and in unison with an invigorating sun, attempting covertly to rouse the dormant powers of the vegetable world, while on the next the surly blasts from the north would sweep across the lake and erase every impression left by their gentle adversaries. The snow, however, finally disappeared, and the green wheat-fields were seen in every direction, spotted with the dark and charred stumps that had, the preceding season, supported some of the proudest trees of the forest. Ploughs were in motion, wherever those useful implements could be used, and the smokes of the sugar camps were no longer seen issuing from the woods of maple. The lake had lost the beauty of a field of ice, but still a dark and gloomy covering concealed its waters, for the absence of currents left them yet hidden under a porous crust, which, saturated with the fluid, barely retained enough strength to preserve the continuity of its parts. Large flocks of wild geese were seen passing over the country, which hovered for a time around the hidden sheet of water, apparently searching for a resting-place, and then, on finding themselves excluded by the chill covering, would soar away to the north filling the air with discordant screams, as if venting their complaints at the tardy operations of nature. For a week the dark covering of the Otsego was left to the undisturbed possession of two eagles, who alighted on the center of its field and sat eyeing their undisputed territory. During the presence of these monarchs of the air, the flocks of migrating birds avoided crossing the plain of ice by turning into the hills, apparently seeking the protection of the forests while the white and bald heads of the tenants of the lake were turned upward with a look of contempt. But the time had come when even these kings of birds were to be dispossessed. An opening had been gradually increasing at the lower extremity of the lake, and around the dark spot where the current of the river prevented the formation of ice during even the coldest weather, and the fresh southerly winds that now breathed freely upon the valley made an impression on the waters. Mimic waves began to curl over the margin of the frozen field, which exhibited an outline of crystallizations that slowly receded toward the north. At each step the power of the winds and the waves increased, until after a struggle of a few hours the turbulent little billows succeeded in setting the whole field in motion, when it was driven beyond the reach of the eye, with a rapidity that was as magical as the change produced in the scene by this expulsion of the lingering remnant of winter. Just as the last sheet of agitated ice was disappearing in the distance, the eagles rose, and soared with a wide sweep above the clouds, while the waves tossed their little caps of snow in the air, as if rioting in their release from a thraldom of five minutes' duration. The following morning Elizabeth was awakened by the exhilarating sounds of the martins, who were quarrelling and chattering around the little boxes suspended above her windows, and the cries of Richard 
who was calling in tones animating as signs of the season itself. "'Awake! Awake! my fair lady! The gulls are hovering over the lake already, and the heavens are alive with pigeons. You may look an hour before you can find a hole through which to get a peep at the sun. Awake! Awake, lazy ones! Benjamin is overhauling the ammunition, and we only wait for our breakfasts, and away for the mountains and pigeon-shooting." There was no resisting this animated appeal, and in a few minutes Miss Temple and her friend descended to the parlour. The doors of the hall were thrown open, and the mild, balmy air of a clear spring morning was ventilating the apartment, where the vigilance of the ex-steward had been so long maintaining an artificial heat with such unremitted diligence. The gentlemen were impatiently waiting for their morning's repast, each equipped in the garb of a sportsman. Mr. Jones made many visits to the southern door, and would cry, "'See, Cousin Bess, see! Duke, the pigeon-roosts of the south have broken up. They are growing more thick every instant. Here is a flock that the eye cannot see the end of. There is food enough in it to keep the army of Xerxes for a month, and feathers enough to make beds for the whole country.' Xerxes, Mr. Edwards, was a Grecian king who—no, he was a Turk, or a Persian, who wanted to conquer Greece, just the same as these rascals will overrun our wheat-fields, when they come back in the fall. Away! Away! Bess, I long to pepper them!" In this wish both Marmaduke and young Edwards seemed equally to participate, for the sight was exhilarating to a sportsman and the ladies soon dismissed the party after a hasty breakfast. If the heavens were alive with pigeons, the whole village seemed equally in motion with men, women, and children. Every species of firearm, from the French ducking-gun, with a barrel near six feet in length, to the common horseman's pistol, was to be seen in the hands of the men and boys, while bows and arrows, some made of the simple stick of walnut sapling, and others in a rude imitation of the ancient crossbows, were carried by many of the latter. The houses and the signs of life apparent in the village drove the alarmed birds from the direct line of their flight, toward the mountains, along the sides and near the bases of which they were glancing in dense masses, equally wonderful by the rapidity of their motion and their incredible numbers. We have already said that, across the inclined plain which fell from the steep ascent of the mountain to the banks of the Susquehanna, ran the highway on either side of which a clearing of many acres had been made at a very early day. Over those clearings, and up the eastern mountain, and along the dangerous path that was cut into its side, the different individuals posted themselves, and in a few moments the attack commenced. Among the sportsmen was the tall, gaunt form of leather-stocking walking over the field, with his rifle hanging on his arm, his dogs at his heels, the latter now scenting the dead or wounded birds that were beginning to tumble from the flocks, and then crouching under the legs of their master, as if they participated in his feelings at this wasteful and unsportsmanlike execution. The reports of the firearms became rapid, whole volleys rising from the plain, as flocks of more than ordinary numbers darted over the opening shadowing the field like a cloud, and then the light smoke of a single piece would issue from among the leafless bushes on the mountain, as death was hurled on the retreat of the affrighted birds, who were rising from a volley, in a vain effort to escape. Arrows and missiles of every kind were in the midst of the flocks, and so numerous were the birds, and so low did they take their flight, 
that even long poles in the hands of those on the sides of the mountain were used to strike them to the earth. During all this time Mr. Jones, who disdained the humble and ordinary means of destruction used by his companions, was busily occupied, aided by Benjamin, in making arrangements for an assault of more than ordinarily fatal character. Among the relics of the old military excursions that occasionally are discovered throughout the different districts of the western part of New York, there had been found in Templeton, at its settlement, a small swivel, which would carry a ball of a pound weight. It was thought to have been deserted by a war-party of the whites in one of their inroads into the Indian settlements, when perhaps convenience or their necessity induced them to leave such an encumbrance behind them in the woods. This miniature cannon had been released from the rust, and being mounted on little wheels was now in a state for actual service. For several years it was the sole organ for extraordinary rejoicings used in those mountains. On the mornings of the Fourth of July it would be heard ringing among the hills, and even Captain Hollister, who was the highest authority in that part of the country on all such occasions, affirmed that, considering its dimensions, it was no despicable gun for a salute. It was somewhat the worse for the service it had performed, it is true, there being but a trifling difference in size between the touch-hole and the muzzle. Still, the grand conceptions of Richard had suggested the importance of such an instrument in hurling death at his nimble enemies. The swivel was dragged by a horse into a part of the open space that the sheriff thought most eligible for planning a battery of the kind, and Mr. Pump proceeded to load it. Several handfuls of duck-shot were placed on top of the powder, and the major-domo announced that his piece was ready for service. The sight of such an implement collected all the idle spectators to the spot, who, being mostly boys, filled the air with cries of exultation and delight. The gun was pointed high, and Richard, holding a coal of fire in a pair of tongs, patiently took his seat on a stump awaiting the appearance of a flock worthy of his notice. So prodigious was the number of the birds that the scattering fire of the guns with the hurling of missiles and the cries of the boys had no other effect than to break off small flocks from the immense masses that continued to dart along the valley, as if the whole of the feathered tribe were pouring through that one pass. None pretended to collect the game which lay scattered over the fields in such profusion as to cover the very ground with fluttering victims. Leatherstocking was a silent but uneasy spectator of all these proceedings, but was able to keep his sentiments to himself until he saw the introduction of the swivel into the sports. "'This comes of settling a country,' he said. "'Here I have known the pigeon to fly for forty long years, and, till you made your clearings, there was nobody to skirt or to hurt them. I loved to see them come into the woods, for they were company to a body, hurting nothing, being, as it was, as harmless as a garter-snake. But now it gives me sore thoughts when I hear the frighty things whizzing through the air, for I know it's only a motion to bring out all the brats of the village. Well, the Lord won't see the waste of his creatures for nothing, and right will be done to the pigeons, as well as others, by and by. There's Mr. Oliver as bad as the rest of them, firing into the flocks as if he was shooting down nothing but Mingo warriors. Among the sportsmen was Billy Kirby, who, armed with an old musket, was loading, 
and, without even looking into the air, was firing and shouting as his victims fell even on his own person. He heard the speech of Natty, and took upon himself to reply. "'What, old leather-stocking?' he cried, grumbling at the loss of a few pigeons. "'If you had to sow your wheat twice and three times, as I have done, you wouldn't be so massifully feeling toward the devils.' Hurrah, boys! Scatter the feathers! This is better than shooting at a turkey's head and neck, old fellow." "'It's better for you, maybe, Billy Kirby,' replied the indignant old hunter, and all them that don't know how to put a ball down a rifle-barrel, or how to bring it up again with a true aim. But it's wicked to be shooting into flocks in this wasty manner, and none to do it who know how to knock over a single bird. If a body has a craving for pigeon's flesh, why, it's made the same as all other creatures, for man's eating, but not to kill twenty and eat one. When I want such a thing I go into the woods till I find one to my liking, and then I shoot him off the branches, without touching the feather of another, though there might be a hundred on the same tree. You couldn't do such a thing, Billy Kirby. You couldn't do it if you tried. "'What's that old cornstalk, you sapless stub?' cried the woodchopper. You have grown wordy since the affair of the turkey, but if you are for a single shot, here goes at that bird which comes on by himself." The fire from the distant part of the field had driven a single pigeon below the flock to which it belonged, and frightened, with the constant reports of the muskets, it was approaching the spot where the disputants stood, darting first from one side and then to the other cutting the air with the swiftness of lightning, and making a noise with its wings not unlike the rushing of a bullet. Unfortunately for the woodchopper, notwithstanding his vaunt, he did not see this bird until it was too late to fire as it approached, and he pulled the trigger at the unlucky moment when it was darting immediately over his head. The bird continued its course with the usual velocity. Natty lowered his rifle from his arm when the challenge was made and waiting a moment until the terrified victim had got in a line with his eye, and had dropped near the bank of the lake, he raised it again with uncommon rapidity, and fired. It might have been chance, or it might have been skill, that produced the result. It was probably a union of both. But the pigeon whirled over in the air, and fell into the lake with a broken wing. At the sound of his rifle both his dogs started from his feet and in a few minutes the slut brought out the bird still alive. The wonderful exploit of leather-stocking was noised through the field with great rapidity, and the sportsmen gathered in to learn the truth of the report. "'What?' said young Edwards. "'Have you really killed a pigeon on the wing, Natty, with a single ball?' "'Haven't I killed loons before now, lad, that dive at the flash?' returned the hunter. It's much better to kill only such as you want, without wasting your powder and lead, than to be firing into God's creatures in this wicked manner. But I came out for a bird, and you know the reason why I like small game, Mr. Oliver. And now I have got one, twill go home, for I don't relish to see these wasty ways that you are all practicing. As if the least thing wasn't made for use, and not to destroy. Thou sayest well, Leatherstocking cried Marmaduke, and I begin to think it time to put an end to this work of destruction. Put an end, judge, to your clearings. Ain't the woods his work as well as the pigeons? Use, but don't waste. Wasn't the woods made for the beasts and birds to harbor in, 
and when man wanted their flesh, their skins, or their feathers, there's the place to seek them. But I'll go to the hut with my own game, for I wouldn't touch one of the harmless things that cover the ground here, looking up with their eyes on me, as if they only wanted tongues to say their thoughts. With this sentiment in his mouth, Leatherstocking threw his rifle over his arm, and, followed by his dog, stepped across the clearing with great caution, taking care not to tread on one of the wounded birds in his path. He soon entered the bushes on the margin of the lake and was hid from view. Whatever impression the morality of Natty made on the judge, it was utterly lost on Richard. He availed himself of the gathering of the sportsmen to lay a plan for one fell swoop of destruction. The musket-men were drawn up in battle array, and a line extending on each side of his artillery, with orders to await the signal of firing from himself. "'Stand by, my lads,' said Benjamin, who acted as an aide-de-camp on this occasion. "'Stand by, my hearties, and when Squire Dickens heaves out the signal to begin firing, do you see, you may open upon them in a broadside. Take care and fire low, boys, and you'll be sure to hold the flock.' "'Fire low!' shouted Kirby. "'Hear the old fool. If we fire low we may hit the stumps, but not ruffle a pigeon.' "'How should you know, you lubber?' cried Benjamin, with a very unbecoming heat for an officer on the eve of battle. "'How should you know, you grampus? Haven't I sailed aboard of the Bodiche for five years, and wasn't it a standing order to fire low and to hull your enemy? Keep silence at your guns, boys, and mind the order that is passed.' The loud laughs of the musket-men were silenced by the more authoritative voice of Richard, who called for attention and obedience to his signals. Some millions of pigeons were supposed to have already passed that morning over the valley of Templeton, but nothing like the flock that was now approaching had been seen before. It extended from mountain to mountain in one solid blue mass, and the eye looked in vain over the southern hills to find its termination. The front of this living column was distinctly marked by a line but very slightly indented, so regular and even was the flight. Even Marmaduke forgot the morality of leather-stocking as it approached, and in common with the rest brought his musket to a poise. "'Fire!' cried the sheriff, clapping a coal to the priming of the cannon. As half of Benjamin's charge escaped through the touch-hole, the whole volley of the musketry preceded the report of the swivel. On receiving this united discharge of small arms, the front of the flock darted upward, while at the same instant myriads of those in the rear rushed with amazing rapidity into their places, so that when the column of white smoke gushed from the mouth of the little cannon, an accumulated mass of objects was gliding over its point of direction. The roar of the gun echoed along the mountains, and died away to the north like distant thunder while the whole flock of alarmed birds seemed for a moment thrown into one disorderly and agitated mass. The air was filled with their irregular flight, layer rising above layer, far above the tops of the highest pines, none daring to advance beyond the dangerous pass, when suddenly some of the headers of the feathered tribes shot across the valley, taking their flight directly over the village, and hundreds of thousands in their rear followed the example, deserting the eastern side of the plain to their persecutors and the slain. "'Victory!' shouted Richard. "'Victory! We have driven the enemy from the field!' "'Not so, Dickon,' said Marmaduke. "'The field is covered with them.' And, like the leather-stocking, I see nothing but eyes in every direction as the innocent sufferers turn their heads in terror. Full one-half of those that have fallen are yet alive. 
and I think it is time to end the sport, if sport it be. Sport, cried the sheriff, it is princely sport. There are some thousands of the blue-coated boys on the ground, so that every old woman in the village may have a pot-pie for the asking. Well, we have happily frightened the birds from this side of the valley, said Marmaduke, and the carnage must of necessity end for the present. Boys, I will give you sixpence a hundred for the pigeons' heads only, so go to work, and bring them into the village. This expedient produced the desired effect, for every urchin on the ground went industriously to work to wring the necks of the wounded birds. Judge Temple retired toward his dwelling, with that kind of feeling that many a man has experienced before him, who discovers, after the excitement of the moment has passed, that he has purchased pleasure at the price of misery to others. Horses were loaded with the dead, and after this first burst of sporting, the shooting of pigeons became a business with a few idlers for the remainder of the season. Richard, however, boasted for many a year of his shot with the cricket, and Benjamin gravely asserted that he thought they had killed nearly as many pigeons on that day as there were Frenchmen destroyed on the memorable occasion of Rodney's victory. End of chapter 22 Recording by Bill Borst